Father, thank you for the continued encouragement that you give to us through your Holy Spirit, the one who is our counselor, uh, the one who uh, encourages us and lifts us up along the way, as well as uh, convicts us of sin and uh, guides us in the way of righteousness. We thank you for the blessing that you give us to be able to study your word. Uh, we continue to pray for those that are uh, not well and dealing with various issues. Uh, we pray for our nation and the unrest and a lot of things that are going on. And Lord, we know you're in control ultimately, and our hope is in you. So for that, we're thankful. Uh, we anticipate continuing to add some uh, ministries back. And uh, Lord, you've blessed us so far. And as we move forward, uh, we want to do it in a way that honors you, but also keeps us encouraged knowing that there is uh, uh, some progress to be made. So uh, we're anticipating that. And we look forward to celebrating the bread and the cup again uh, in October and the, the body of, and the blood of our Savior. And I pray there are those who uh, either need to be saved and baptized or who've already been saved but have not yet been baptized that uh, they would express their desire to do so as that opportunity is given in uh, the weeks to come. And we pray now, Lord, as we look at your word in Hosea, uh, this is, in some ways, a very difficult book, a difficult prophecy, but yet uh, your love shines through it, and the faithfulness that you have for your people uh, really is apparent, uh, and for that, we thank you, and we pray your blessings on it now and ask it in Jesus' name, amen. We begin tonight in our study in Hosea in a series of messages entitled, The Relentless Love of God. I'm going to introduce the book tonight uh, with the first three verses in chapter 1, although I'll be making reference uh, to some other verses in the book as well for an overview. And then we'll go a little bit deeper as we move along. Uh, the prophets in the Old Testament are divided into the major prophets and the minor prophets. The major prophets, of course, are Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel and Daniel with uh, the prophecy of Lamentations being in there as well. The minor prophets are uh, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. The minor prophets are sometimes referred to as the Twelve. Uh, they originate from four basic time periods. Uh, as Assyria rises in power and then as Israel falls to Assyria, uh, the rise of Babylon and then the rule of Persia. Uh, major does not refer to importance. It refers rather to the length of the prophecies. Likewise, minor refers to the shorter length. The books are full of prophetic warnings and judgments and probably are some of the least read sections of Scripture if we're honest about it, uh, maybe uh, only less read would be Leviticus potentially just because of the complexity of it. And that's really unfortunate because there's so much here about the character of God and how he relates to his people and how we are to relate to him. The time period of the prophets in the Old Testament covers a period only about 300 years in length from the 8th century to the 5th century B.C., Individually and collectively, they remind Israel of the Old Covenant, but then they serve as a bridge 
to the new covenant in anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. Hosea's book is the first in the minor prophets. Hosea is autobiographical in a sense because it opens with his own marriage and then his family as part of the message. Uh, The rebellion of God's people coupled with the relentless love of God uh, and then the call to repent are presented dramatically by the prophet. And other than the family information, we don't know much of anything about Hosea. Hosea's name means salvation. Uh, His father uh, is listed here, as we'll read in just a moment. His rule, uh, his uh, prophecy began under the rule or the reign of Jeroboam II, who ruled Israel and the northern kingdom, really as the co-regent with his father, Uh, Jehoash from 793 to 782 BC and then his uh, own individual reign alone until 753 BC. So kind of the time frame of when Hosea served was about 40 years and then it ended with uh, Hezekiah's reign uh, in the time frame that he was in. Uh, Hosea's time would have been after that of King David and King Solomon uh, when the people of God Uh, had uh, divided into two nations, uh, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Uh, This would have been about uh, 250 years after King David and about 650 years after Israel entered the promised land. So his messages were directed mainly toward the northern kingdom, uh, Ephraim in particular, and he evidently lived around Samaria somewhere, and then moved to Jerusalem later on. Uh, The political and uh, economic circumstance at the time was fairly prosperous, uh, and that in part was their problem. It was a time when things were uh, politically successful and economically prosperous, and it tends to be when things are prosperous and successful that people look to themselves for the answers rather than looking to God. Uh, idolatry became a rampant problem, a spiritual failure, and moral corruption took hold. Now, kind of as a basic rhythm of this book, it's structured around cycles of judgment and restoration. And there's this repetitious theme that comes up again and again. And though God will bring judgment on sin, his desire is always to bring his people back to himself. And God's love for his people, uh, for Israel, a nation of people that were more interested in themselves than in God's direction for their lives, his love shines brightly against that idolatry and against that injustice. And I think we're going to find some themes, uh, spiritually especially, that are going to run concurrently even with our own times. So I would say that the book of Hosea is about judgment but it's also about love. And because of the love of God in the midst of judgment, there is still hope. Each of the major sections of the book uh, begin with the threat of divine judgment, and then they end with the promise of divine restoration. And they, they teach us about the relentless love of God. Hosea 1 in verse 1, this is what the Bible says. 
the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and the, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now I want to show you this tonight in three movements. There's a marriage first, and then there's a message, and then there's a Messiah. A marriage, a message, and a Messiah. Let's begin first with the marriage. There is a marriage. In the Old Testament, God initiated a covenant relationship with his people, the children of Israel. A covenant was established with Abram prior to that, confirmed through his son Isaac, and then reaffirmed through Jacob and his descendants forever. And God promised that he was going to be faithful. There's never been a promise that God has not kept. And he promised that he would set this nation apart as a holy people unto himself. Now, their response to this was to consecrate themselves as a holy people unto God and to serve him faithfully. Now, interestingly, throughout the Old Testament, one of the primary analogies of God's relationship with his people is that of marriage. The Jewish interpretation, in fact, of the Sinai covenant is that of a betrothal ceremony, an interpretation that is found and echoed really throughout the Old Testament. Israel's idolatry, uh, their following after false gods, is repeated and referred to as adultery in the Old Testament. So we come upon this idea uh, time and time again that God is the husband, essentially, of his people. He is always faithful, and yet his people have this tendency, because of sin, to fall into idolatry, to commit spiritual adultery, and to suffer the consequences because of it. The prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 54 and verse 5, For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. The people broke their vows to God, and they succumbed to idolatry, and they pursued their own selfish interest. And even though the people were unfaithful, God kept his promise. Because remember, there's never been a promise that God has made that he has not kept, and there is not one single promise in the Bible that remains that is unfulfilled that God will not keep, in the future. Deuteronomy 7 and verse 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, He's a faithful God who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love Him and keep His commandments. So in the book of Hosea specifically, God used the symbolism of marriage and a broken relationship to communicate His relentless love for His people. Now, we'll see a little bit further into this message that Jesus became the living embodiment of the bridegroom and of the faithful husband. 
who was willing to give his life for the bride, for the church. And God's covenant relationship is eternal through the relationship with his son who formed a new covenant for all who would believe in him. 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 2 says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Now you'll notice here in Hosea 1 and verse 2 that when the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea that he was to take for himself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry. That's repeated in Hosea 3 and verse 1. He said, the Lord said to me, go again and love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of pagans. So here's what God said to Hosea. He said, your bachelor days are over and you're going to get married but it's not going to be a conventional marriage because the problem with the wedding announcement was that it came with a dreadful prophecy. His wife, who should have been faithful, was going to break his heart. And yet Hosea the prophet was willing to humble himself and be obedient to the Lord. Hosea and Gomer were married she fell into sin, turned away from Hosea, forgot him, and united with others. Now, what's most important here are not the details of this marriage, but rather what it represents. Just as Gomer was unfaithful and uh, abandoned her commitment to Hosea, Israel forgot God and abandoned her commitment to the Father and chased after other gods. And this marriage is a picture of what took place. Now for the second part of this passage, there is a message. We move now from the marriage to the message. God was and God is offended by the unfaithfulness of his people. He is a jealous God. Israel deserved judgment. God had every right to judge them for breaking their commandment and breaking their covenant relationship with him. Israel had outright forsaken God. They had worshiped Baal. They lived in extravagance. They swore and lied and murdered and stole and shed blood and forgot the law of God. They transgressed the covenant. They turned to other nations for help when times got desperate and the word of God became foreign to them. So the message first focused on judgment. They would experience separation or exile because of their behavior before the Lord. And that's what the message focused on. God says in verse 9, you're not my people and I am not your God. He says in chapter 2, I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals. They went after lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. In chapter 4, he says, I reject you from being a priest to me because you've forgotten the law of God. I'll also forget your children. And for all of this behavior, judgment was going to come down. And that judgment was going to come in the form of Assyria. And while it is a message of judgment, it also leads to mercy 
grace, love, and hope. So watch this. Messages of judgment in the Bible are followed by messages of deliverance until it is too late for the deliverance to come. There is an expiration date from a temporal and earthly perspective of when the relentless love of God can be received and when we can trust in him and turn from our ways. Chapter 1 and verse 10 says, right after God says, I'm not your God, the verse says, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. Chapter 2 and verse 13, God said that he would punish them. But then in verse 14, he says, Behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Verse 16, And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. He, he, he compares Israel later on in this prophecy to a prodigal son whom he called out and whom he cared for. So the marriage leads to the message. And just as Hosea chased Gomer down and loved her, even though she didn't love him and continued on in unfaithfulness, and even though she didn't deserve mercy, uh, God pursues his people. And God will not let his people go. God is relentless in his love for his people. And the bottom line is, even though Israel was unfaithful, God remained faithful. And there is a direct principle in our lives of this very thing, that even when we are faithless and unfaithful, God remains faithful in all that he does on behalf of his people. So I don't want you to miss this point. Symbolically, in a sense, we are all Israel. And symbolically, in a sense, we are all Gomer. Why? Because we are drawn toward idolatry. In fact, the hearts of people uh, are idol factories. You can say, What's a, what is an idol today? How can we make this application to our own lives? Uh, I just began to listen to a series by uh, Tony Evans entitled American Idols. And the first part of it was excellent. But he gave this definition of idolatry. He said, idolatry is anything that competes for your ultimate uh, loyalty. That's what idolatry is. Anything that competes for your ultimate loyalty. So idols can be people, places, power, possessions, prominence, you name it. Anything that supersedes your allegiance to the one true living God, if it becomes in that place of prominence, in that place of priority in your life, then it can become an idol for you to distract you from God. Tim Keller said, anything you look at and in your heart of hearts, you say to it, if I have that, then my life has value. That's an idol. And if I lose that, I don't know how I would live. That's an idol. When you take a good thing and you make it an ultimate thing, then you have created an idol in your life. So Hosea's marriage is a picture of God's love. Hosea's message is a message of judgment and mercy. But then Hosea points us to a new covenant, a new marriage on new terms with a powerful deliverer that can do what we cannot do. So the first part of the overview, the introduction is there's a marriage. The second part of the introduction is there is a message. 
But the third part of the introduction is that there is a Messiah. Chapter 2 and verse 16 says, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. Now, I've already read that verse, but I'm reading it again for emphasis because it's so important. It's at the heart of the message. And if you go back and read this, and I really would encourage you to follow along so you have context, repeatedly, God says, I'm going to do something. So God says, I will do it. I will remove the names of the Baals. I will make for them a covenant. I will abolish the wrong. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and steadfast love and mercy and faithfulness. So in the darkest of the nights, in the most desperate of the situations, in the most hopeless of circumstances, God looks at these people who are undeserving and he says there's hope. And the reason there's hope is because I'm going to help you and I'm going to intervene. And the way I'm going to intervene is through the Messiah. And that same message comes down to us, that we can't, but God can. And God already has through his son. Jesus Christ ultimately is the groom who has died for his bride, who has redeemed his bride, who has been raised from the dead for his bride. He has kept the law and the covenant perfectly, which nobody could even come close to doing. He paid the price. He's the husband. He rescued the wife. The wife is the church. And we're a part of the church, and we are in Christ. All of grace, because God has done it, and he's brought us to himself. So the message for us through the Messiah is divorce all of the idols. Do away with all of the nonsense and the unrighteousness and commit to Christ. I read a devotion in uh, Our Daily Bread that uh, I think illustrates this well, and I'm going to read part of it here. And uh, they were basing it off of Psalm 73 and, and verse 24, but writing about what God has done through Hosea. And listen to what he says. He says, when we reflect on the past, things often look much different than when they happened. For instance, a young woman cried when she broke up with a young man to whom she had been engaged. Yet later, she told me that she looked back on that heartache with gratitude. Today, she has a fine Christian husband, and the former suitor turned out to be irresponsible and has been twice divorced. When Hosea wrote the book that bears his name, he saw the earlier events of his life quite differently than when he lived them. He had married a girl named Gomer, only to see her become unfaithful to him, bear children uh, by other men, and sell herself into ritual prostitution. And with a broken heart, he had continued his ministry while loving her and longing for her restoration. The day finally came when he was able to purchase her freedom and bring her home. And the Lord enabled Hosea to see his relationship as a dramatic portrayal of God's relationship with his unfaithful people Israel. And I believe that's why Hosea could say early in the book that the Lord, knowing all that would transpire, had in his wise providence directed the prophet to enter this marriage. In heaven, we'll be able to look back and see God's purposes and the things that happened here on this earth. And with this assurance in mind, we can look forward in confidence, saying with the psalmist, you will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me into glory. Never be afraid to entrust an unknown future 
to an all-knowing God. He can always be trusted. So our relationship with God is like a marriage. God is a jealous God, and his people are the bride. God shows great kindness to us, even though we at times turn away from him. God uses struggle uh, to bring us to the place of repentance so that we will turn back to him, and God will deal with unrighteousness, and he has ultimately dealt with unrighteousness through laying our sins on his son on the cross, and God reveals his love to us, and he will never forsake us. Now, I want to think just for a moment before I close tonight about the word Beulah in the Old Testament. Now, this is a little bit of a side trail, but I couldn't get off of it as I was thinking about uh, this message, and I want to close with this thought. Uh, We are familiar with the word probably from the song uh, Beulah Land, but the word Beulah is in reference uh, to a place. It's found in Isaiah 62, and it's simply a transliteration of the word meaning married. Now, this is important because the context of Isaiah 62 and verse 4 speaks of the time when Israel would return from exile and once again return to the Lord. The verse applies to the land of Israel and, by extension, to the people of Israel. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah. For the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. Now this verse does not say that Israel will ever be officially called Beulah, certainly not Beulah land, but that Israel will be attended to by the Lord as a husband would attend to his beloved bride. The point is in the meaning of the word. Rather than be considered forsaken by the Lord, God's people will be restored to a close loving relationship with him and all that they need will be provided. The phrase Beulah Land is actually used, interestingly, in the Christian classic, The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. He said, now I saw in a dream that by this time the pilgrims were got over uh, the enchanted ground and entering into the country of Beulah. Now in Bunyan's allegory, Beulah Land is the land that is just before heaven. It's just on the precipice of heaven. For here they were within the sight of the city, he said, that they were going into. And in the allegory, although Christian and hopeful have not yet entered in to the celestial city, they have escaped at that point the snares and the temptations of the world, and all of their needs have been met. Now there are two songs in history that have picked up on this popular term, Beulah and Beulah Land. The first one was from... Uh, the uh, writer Edgar Page Stiles, and it was in some older hymn books, although I've never seen it or sung that particular version of it. The second, of course, being Sweet Beulah Land that was uh, sung by uh, Squire Parsons. And you know, in that song, Beulah Land uh, has become another name for heaven, not just the precipice of heaven, but heaven itself. And it's interesting that a lot of Christian symbolism interprets Israel and the promised land and Zion and Beulah land as heaven itself. And we use that phrase of crossing the Jordan that's a symbol of death that ushers us in to the promised land. And that's such a beautiful picture because we in Christ 
are eternally married to him. And he is the faithful bridegroom, God the Father as the husband of his church. And when you think of your failures, you can always think of God's faithfulness because he's going to see us all the way through this life. His relentless love is going to pursue us. And one day we're going to cross over the Jordan, as it were, and we're going to enter into that Beulah land, into the very presence of God himself. Our lives will not have been marked out by our unfaithfulness. They will have been marked out by the faithfulness of God if we look to him and his relentless love. Let's bow our heads together as we pray, and then uh, I'll make a couple of closing comments. Father, thank you for uh, Hosea and the message of the prophet. Uh, what an unusual uh, call you placed on his life, and yet he trusted you enough to say yes and to do what he was told. I wonder even as I think about a circumstance like that, how many of us uh, would have just said, no, Lord, that doesn't make sense. I can't do it. I won't do it. But yet he's, he yielded himself to you and you used him in a great way. Uh, Lord, uh, find us faithful in the midst of our unfaithfulness. And we thank you that you're the one that relentlessly pursues us by your love. And we look forward to uh, seeing those, uh, the, the, the blessing of crossing over into heaven, into your presence someday, whenever that would be. And, and in the meantime, we await the return of our Lord. And we pray it all in his name. Amen.